Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendour, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favourites and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. In our first episode, we'll explore the wonderful crackle of winter, a fire in the hearth and boots crunching on frozen grass, as well as the softness, voluminous jumpers, and the delicate steam from a bowl of soup. We'll take a tour of Nuremberg and the Christkindles market, and I'll talk you through my recipes for a sound malt loaf and some orange and poppy seed stollen, the perfect sticky desserts to begin our wintry adventure. 29th of November, winter has arrived. the icy prickle across your face as you walk out into the freezing air, the piercing burn to your sinuses, like wasabi. Your eyes sparkle, your ears tingle. The rush of cold to your head is stimulating, vital, energising. The arrival of the first snap of cold is invigorating, like jumping into an ice pool after the long sauna of summer. Winter feels like a renewal, at least it does to me. I long for that ice-bright light, skies of pale blue and soft grey light that is at once calm and gentle, fresh and crisp, away from the stifling airlessness of summer. I once again have more energy. Winter has arrived. I can breathe again. My childhood memories of summer are few and precious. Picking black currants for pocket money, a vanilla ice cream, held between two wafers, eaten on the seafront with my mum, seagulls overhead. Sitting in a meadow, buttercups tickling my bare legs, eating ham sandwiches and drinking dandelion and burdock. Pleading with my parents to stop the car so I could get out and pick scarlet poppies with petals like butterflies' wings that wilted before I could get them home. These are virtually the only recollections I have of those early summers. It's the winters that stay in my memory, carved deep as a fjord, as long and clear as an icicle. It's as if my entire childhood was lived out in the cold months, a decade spent togged up in duffel coats and mittens, wellingtons and woolly hats. To this day, I'm never happier than when there's frost on the roof and a fire in the hearth. I've always preferred snow underfoot to sand between my toes. I love the crackle of winter, the snap of dry twigs underfoot, boots crunching on frozen grass, a fire spitting in the hearth, ice thawing on a pond, the sound of unwrapping a Christmas present from its paper. The innate crispness of the season appeals to me, like newly fallen snow, frosted hedges, the first fresh page of a new diary. Yes, there is softness in the cold months too, the voluminous jumpers and woolly hats, the steam rising from soup served in a deep bowl, 
the light from a single candle, and the much-loved scarf that would feel like a burden at any other time of the year. We all know winter, the mysterious whiff of jasmine or narcissus caught on the cold air, the sadness of spent, blackened fireworks the morning after bonfire night, a row of pumpkins on a frosted allotment spied from a train window, the magical alchemy of frost and smoke. Winter is the smell of freshly cut ivy or yew, and the childish excitement of finding that first crisp layer of fine ice on a puddle. It is a freckling of snow on cobbled pavements, and the golden light from a window on a dark evening that glows like a Russian icon on a museum wall. But for each midwinter sunset, there is another side to this season like the one of 1962-3, when farmers, unable to negotiate deep snowdrifts, wept as their animals froze to death in the fields. The snap of frail bones as an elderly neighbour slips on the ice. The grim catalogue of deaths of the homeless from hypothermia. Winter is as deadly as she is beautiful. A walk through the snow. It started with berries, holly, rowan, rosehips. A project to record the plants, edible and poisonous, that we spotted on our walk to school. Two miles, in my case, of hedgerows to inspect daily. Hardly a project for me. I knew those hedgerows intimately, each tree and ditch, every lichen-covered gate. I knew which had wild sweet peas, Lathyrus odoratus, or primroses hidden by twigs, and where to find a bullfinch's nest. When you walk the same route every day on your own, you get to know these things. A tree you must duck to avoid a soaking if it's been raining during the night. The progress of a slowly decomposing tree stump among the grass. A bush that delights with a froth of wild blossom in spring that by autumn is a mass of purple-black berries. You get to know the site of the sweetest blackberries and the exact location of the wild violets. White and piercing purple that twinkle like stars in dark holloways. Even then I knew that hedgerows were sacred, the homes of birds' nests and voles, hedgehogs and whores. I knew that the long, slim rosehips came from the single wild roses that are to this day one of my favourite flowers along with the hawthorn. I knew too that my father's name for hawthorn was bread and cheese, an ancient reference to the usefulness of its leaves and berries in winter. I also understood that the scarlet berries of yew and holly were never, ever for consumption. It was the berries left behind in the winter that held a special fascination for me. The darkening rosehips and hawthorn berries seen against a tapestry of frosty leaves the solemn beauty of ivy and hypericum berries against a grey wall, a rosehip trapped in ice. Walking was part of my country childhood, a solitary one, but by no means lonely. Not that there was any choice. My father drove back to the black country during the week. We had just four buses, two on a Wednesday, one there, one back, and two on Saturday. A bike, you say? not up the steep hills that surrounded Nightwick with a gym bag and a leather satchel full of books. There were always books. 
We lived on the border of two counties. Home and school were in Worcestershire, the nearest shops in Herefordshire. The walks were wretched in summer, sweaty and hateful, full of stinging nettles and sunburn. But in autumn and winter, each day was an adventure. I rarely got home before darkness fell. There was a moment, a patch of barely half an hour, when the sun would burn fiercely in the winter sky, just before it slid away, that I regarded as unmissable, something I had to be outside for. It was the walk to school that started everything. A life lived with the rhythm of the seasons, not purely the food. Miles from a supermarket or a greengrocer, we ate more seasonally than most. But the outdoors too, the landscape, the garden and the market, the sounds and smells that mark one season as different from another. Celebrating Christmas Christmas is celebrated by Christians and non-Christians alike. It is a cultural event as much as a religious one, and its history is confused. Many of the festival's observances date from pre-Christian times, and those who celebrate it as a purely religious event might be surprised to find out how much of the festivities hail from pagan times. We celebrated winter long before we celebrated Christmas. Saturnalia was the Roman festival in honour of the god Saturn, with feasting lasting from December the 17th to the 23rd. Happily atheist, I celebrate Christmas as much as anyone, with foods and gifts and, yes, carols, but I fully accept that much of my own celebration has a religious history. I go along with the religious details of Christmas because they've become interwoven with the cultural side of festivities. The nativity is as much a part of Christmas as Santa Claus and the pagan habit of bringing holly and mistletoe into the house. It is almost impossible to separate the pagan from the pious, and why would I want to anyway when December the 25th was chosen simply because it landed in the middle of what was already a pagan festival? Christmas is a vast steaming pudding of Christianity, folklore, paganism, tradition and commerce. Those of us who are part of a tolerant, open-minded and intelligent society can make our Christmas whatever we want it to be. To put it another way, we can have our cake and eat it. The best of Christmases, the worst of Christmases. We tend to remember Christmases with exemplary clarity. Something unusual that happens over these 12 days at the heart of winter is unlikely ever to be forgotten. Even the most innocent event is almost guaranteed to be relived with a certain annual glee. My own catalogue of unlikely Yuletide events has involved a Christmas Eve where I forgot to tell the family I was coming home, only to find they'd left for the week. I was taken in, waif-like, by generous neighbours. The year the cake sat half-iced because I'd run out of icing sugar. The Christmas morning I realised the goose was too long for the oven and had to be cut in half. Then there was the time the cats pulled the ten-foot tree onto the floor, smashing my much-loved collection of decorations and frightening the life out of themselves into the bargain. Then there was the Christmas mum died. For me, Christmas is the heart and soul of the cold months, the jewel in the crown of midwinter, 
a time to feast and to give. But it is, after all, is said and done, just a few days that sit at the heart of the season. Three months of our year in which to offer warmth, welcome and something good to eat to all. Thirtieth of November, Christmas windows. To see Fortnum and Mason's Christmas windows is to step into the pages of a book of fairy tales. Each year they glisten and sparkle like frost on a topiary garden, a scene of old-fashioned wonder and delight. The designs are cluttered in the loveliest sense, like looking into a kaleidoscope. The attention to detail is breathtaking. The four windows facing the Royal Academy on London's Piccadilly, like the heavy-lidded eyes of a much-loved great-aunt as she nods off to sleep, usually contain a story, a depiction of a fairy tale or nursery rhyme. They often have a touch of fantasy about them, as if the old girl had taken a few magic mushrooms. Take your time. They always deserve a long look, a good five minutes at least so you can take in every exquisite detail of Alice in Wonderland or Cinderella. I'll meet you outside Fortnum's means you'll have something more interesting to look at than your phone. Among the most memorable were those based on illustrations by Christiana Williams and featuring 300 paper birds, leaves and flowers in deep wine-gum colours against a black background. Meticulously crafted. Others have included an arrangement of Christmas puddings amid a candlelit snow scene with icicles and frosted twigs, a sleigh set in deep snow with falling snowflakes caught in the lights, a resplendent Santa and his sack of beribboned gifts visiting a boy and his sister as they sleep beside the chimney. There will be glitter and snow, sparkling lights and fairies, a labyrinth of bizarre and wondrous creatures, There'll be snow-covered trees laden with doll's house mince pies, glasses of fizz and bejeweled baubles. Above all, expect painstaking detail, brilliantly assembled vignettes, crafted with an extraordinary imagination. Best seen on a winter's afternoon, just as darkness falls, before taking afternoon tea at the Wolseley, or at one of the several restaurants in the store itself. Even though this is early in the season, most shops already have their windows festively dressed. You know that the visual teams of the large stores have big budgets and huge fun, but also an imaginable responsibility. As always, Liberty is spectacular. This is a store that never seems to put a foot wrong. The low, rectangular windows, handsomely framed by the carved oak timbers of the HMS Hindustan, are invariably a delight, but this time, somehow even more so. The store is always full of surprises, and this year it has worked in collaboration with the Royal Ballet to produce windows based on the Nutcracker. There are toy soldiers and wooden ballerinas, the intricate turning of cogs of clocks, and, of course, the sugar plum fairy. The result is enchanting, like stepping into the magical kingdom of Drosselmeyer itself. The unusual point about the display this year is its almost total lack of merchandise. At the moment when a store can be as commercial as it likes, Liberty has bravely chosen not to. Superb. As I walk through the West End, 
briefly arrested by the sight of Selfridge's sequin Santa and Tiffany's minimal extravagance, I noticed the smaller shop seemed to have pulled out every stop this year too. There is a heartwarming amount of imagination being put into play behind the glass. I wish I'd taken a day purely to window shop. Well, I have sort of. I'm reminded of last year, walking around the Georgian streets of Bath, windows lit like pantomime sets, dazzling, intriguing, hypnotic. The country's independent shops rarely fail to get our attention. As anyone knows who has witnessed the unbridled joy with which small bookshops, toy shops and chocolate shops set about their displays. Yes, Christmas windows are commercial, of course. That is their purpose, a hook to get you over the threshold. But there is also a generosity and playfulness. A round of applause for window dressers everywhere. 1st of December. Mistletoe and Mortloaf. I need to track down a supply of mistletoe. Along with bundles of holly and ivy, its soft green stems have long decorated this house at this time of year. Mistletoe is heavy with folklore. Biscombe Album, the variety of the genus that produces the white, translucent berries, is the one we need to deck our halls at Christmas. A parasitic plant that needs a host tree on which to attach itself. It is abundant in Britain, but particularly so in the Midlands, Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Somerset. I could not think of Christmas without it. The plant's olive green leaves and currant-like berries have deep associations with Yuletide. It's considered sacred, magical and medicinal. The Druids would cut balls of mistletoe from their sacred oak trees at the start of the winter solstice, the ceremony taking place on the sixth night following the new moon, following the solstice. The tradition of hanging a bunch from the doorway was not originally for kissing under though it was certainly considered an aphrodisiac. Early belief was that the berries contained the sperm of the gods. The hanging bunch's first function was to protect the home against thunder and lightning. The genus appears in Celtic rituals, such as the ancient ritual of oak and mistletoe, a religious ceremony in which a druid climbs an oak tree to collect its hall, catching the ball of evergreens in his cloak. Legend has it, that the mistletoe should never be allowed to touch the ground. My long-held romantic vision of my mistletoe being gathered by white-cloaked druids climbing ancient trees is sadly off the mark, though. Most of the stock available in London arrives in a decidedly unromantic lorry from France. Balls of mistletoe, most easily spotted in winter when the trees are bare, grow famously on apple trees, but also on blackthorn, crabapple, lime and hawthorn. I've always associated its appearance with tall trees and open countryside. It is not a woodland creature. Despite the association with dark days, Viscombe Album needs light to thrive. I think of it as an essential part of our winter landscape and as a child would excitedly point out the untidy globes of golden green as we walk through the Worcestershire lanes, in the same way I did poppies in cornfields. The tangles of fork-stemmed greenery are spread from tree to tree by birds, particularly the blackcaps, which wipe the sticky and edible seeds off their beaks on the nearest patch of bark. Particularly prolific in Germany, 
It is known by over 30 different names, including the magnificent Drudenfuhr. According to the Mistletoe Pages, a website celebrating the phenomenon in all its forms, Viscum Album, the original variety, is the only one that has the symmetrical leaves and white berries we look for. I have to admit to not being aware of more than one type, so this could explain why so much I see is missing its berries. I must point out that mistletoe is poisonous to both humans and household pets. The habit of kissing under the mistletoe is curiously English. We seem to have conveniently forgotten that a berry should be picked each time a kiss is given, and once the berries are no more, then so are the kisses. Because of its pagan origins, it is occasionally still banned in some churches. Tenbury Wells in Worcester has been associated with my favourite Christmas evergreen for centuries and is home to the annual mistletoe festival. The town was part of my childhood. As a family, we went there every few weeks, not initially for mistletoe, but because of my father's obsession with clematis, for which the area is also famous. I was happy enough to tag along, though mostly for the coffee and walnut cake in the local cafe. Each Christmas, we would drive off to the mistletoe market, returning with the boot of the car full of string-tied evergreens. Held at the Tenbury Wells Livestock Market until 2004, the area's associations with the plants are now upheld by the Tenbury Mistletoe Association, who are campaigning for today to be officially declared Mistletoe Day. I hope they succeed. There is a mistletoe market held on the last Tuesday of November and the first two Tuesdays of December each year, but check their website for details. Despite its toxicity, mistletoe has long been revered, often controversially, for its healing qualities. It has also long been considered a plant of peace, which may be why this variety is held sacred by the Druids. Legend also has it that fighting armies in the Middle Ages would put down their weapons and call a truce once they spotted the plant growing in the trees. Couples who promised to marry under its branches would have a long and happy marriage. For those who weren't, this was the place to kiss and make up. In more recent, less politically correct times, the habit of kissing under a sprig of mistletoe was reduced to copping a snog in the office. Now, a hanging bunch of Viscom album is returned to a place where lovers tenderly steal a kiss. Farmers' markets are sound hunting grounds, as are garden centres and florists. I pick mine up as late as I can, so it still sports its berries on Christmas Day. But it's worth thinking about it early, especially if you plan to pick it up in quantity and locally grown. Stored outside, it will last longer, though the berries, and therefore its point, will be at prey to the blackbirds. I go shopping and find sweet, crunchy figs and some cobnuts in their frilly coats. Not green and fresh as I like them, and when the nuts are particularly milky. Their crunch is nevertheless one of my favourite elements of an early winter salad. I pick up a wedge of blue cheese too, returning to make an exceptional plate of food. Malt loaf and me. I've no idea when I stopped eating malt loaf. I only know that I did. Perhaps it was its resolutely unfashionable character that sent me looking elsewhere, or the fact that tracking it down was getting more difficult with each passing year. More likely, I gave up the damp, deliciously fruit-laden loaf because other, more exciting things got in the way. 
And then, out of nowhere, I got a fancy to rekindle our old friendship. I longed for a thin slice of buttered malt loaf, the slightly tacky feel on my fingers, that smell of dried fruit and tea I once held so dear. Stripped of the traditional waxed paper wrapper of the commercial brands, I wasn't sure it would be quite the same, like a Kit Kat without the silver foil. Yet one sniff of the baked loaf, think fruitcake meets Ovaltine, and all the good stuff came floating back. Malt loaf is something of a safe harbour, a cloud of raisin and malt-scented nostalgia in a complicated world. It tastes of home, of ticking clocks, and quality time spent with your gran. At least it does for me. The method is straightforward, a recipe anyone can attempt. But it is worth noting that the texture of the uncooked cake mixture is akin to that of raw ginger cake. In other words, a soft batter you can almost pour into the cake tin, rather than stiff and creamy like the texture of an uncooked fruit cake. Sometimes you have to trust a recipe rather than follow your own intuition. Malt loaf is something of a keeper. Wrapped in foil and stored in a cool corner of the kitchen, it will not only keep for a few days, but it will be better for it. Like Christmas cake, this fruit-packed loaf matures benignly. It is a good idea to brush the outside of the freshly baked loaf with some of the malt extract directly from the jar. The sweet mahogany brown goo will be partially absorbed by the loaf, giving the characteristic tackiness that should become part and parcel of such a recipe. A recipe that takes you back to simpler, gentler times. Sometimes you can have too much excitement. And now a recipe. A sound malt loaf. Malt extract is still around, but you may have to go to a large supermarket or whole food store for it. If the surface of the loaf browns more quickly than you would like it to, cover with a piece of kitchen foil for the last few minutes of cooking. Malt extract, 150 grams. Light muscovado sugar, 100 grams. Black treacle, two tablespoons. Plain flour, 250 grams. Baking powder, one teaspoon. Salt, a pinch. Prunes, stoned, 100 grams. Black tea, 125 millilitres. Two eggs. Sultanas or raisins, 100 grams. To finish, a little more malt extract. You will also need a deep rectangular cake tin measuring 20 centimetres by nine, measured on the base, lined with baking parchment. Preheat the oven to 160 degrees centigrade, gas mark three. Put the malt extract, muscovado sugar and black treacle into a small saucepan and warm without stirring over a moderate heat until the sugar has dissolved. Sift the flour, baking powder and salt to combine thoroughly in a large mixing bowl. Chop the prunes into small pieces. Pour the warm malt and sugar mixture into the flour, together with the tea. Break the eggs into a small bowl, beat lightly with a fork and fold into the batter with the chopped prunes and the sultanas or raisins. Scoop the mixture, it is quite soft, into the lined cake tin and gently smooth the surface. Bake for an hour until lightly springy, 
then remove from the oven and leave to cool in its tin. While the cake cools, brush the surface with a little more malt extract. Second of December, to Nuremberg and the Christkindles market. Slowly we dawdle, scarfed and toasty hatted, into the market square. The lights illuminating the stalls are switched off. Families cluster around two fir trees standing guard at the church, but others attempt nonchalance, pretending they are not determinately securing the perfect vantage point for their clicking cannons. This time, the perfect spot is actually taken by a police surveillance van. I find an excellent viewpoint outside the communal entrance to a block of flats. By five o'clock, there is an air of quiet excitement, as if a band were about to come on stage at a festival, which in a way they are. A loud voice, a slow wave of hush, a long speech of which I understand not one solitary word, and then the angel, the golden-crowned Kiskinder appears. A girl, always a girl, blonde, flanked by braided trumpeteers, like those announcing the arrival of the Queen in Alice in Wonderland, she takes a centre spot on the balcony in the shadow of the stained glass window. After the prologue, the Christkinder blesses the market, even though it has been open all day, with a lengthy prologue that ends, You men and women, who once yourselves were children, be them again today, happy as children be. And now the Christkinder to its market calls, and all who come are truly welcome. No problem with this man being a child today. It's hard not to be. Over the coming weeks, crowned and caped, the Christkinder will attend over a hundred charitable events, mostly in children's homes, before finally appearing on Christmas Eve with gifts at one of the city's children's hospitals. The choir sings, softly, reverently, as good as anything I have at home on Deutsche Grammophon. Stillenacht, Heiligenacht, sung in its native German by children under a twinkling fir tree, you would have a heart of stone not to well up at silent night, holy night. As the crush reaches panic attack level, the moment is lightened by a woman shoving her way steely-souled through the throng, pushing a double bass on wheels. It would be difficult to think of anything harder to navigate through this sea of gentle revelry than a double bass wrapped in an overcoat. I am pushed back hard against the wall. Suddenly, the sound of twenty or more voices shouting, Hello! Apparently, I've leaned against all the entry bells of the block of flats. The Christkinder Market covers the marketplace but straggles along the surrounding streets, winding its glue-vine-scented path up the hill. Staggers might be a more appropriate word. I'm not entirely sure where everyone gets their steaming painted pottery mugs from, but everyone, save us, seems to have one. Truth told, I don't actually love mulled wine enough to find out, or indeed souvenir mugs. What I do like is the smell of mulled wine, at least in the open air, with the prickle of frost under my nose. Many of the stalls are those of local shops, festive pop-ups. Others are here purely for the duration of the market. I spot the stolen stall in much the same way a magpie might spot a dropped wedding ring. Rows of icing sugar-dusted, flattened logs of dough 
like low alpine houses with snow on their roofs. Stolen with sultanas and orange peel, stolen with dried mango, with peaches and pistachios, the fruited scent of rumtoff, one with avocado and marzipan, yet another that has something to do with Mozart, though quite what I'm unsure. There is a dark chocolate-covered stolen with a pale gingerbread-coloured crumb, the sight of which is like all my Christmases come at once. There's a bit of a scrum at the painted cookie stall, a crumb scrum. Gaudy and apparently as hard as nails, the biscuits are attracting controversy. Can you eat them afterwards? An American lady inquires of her friends. They look like home bakers. I want to venture that I'm not sure anyone would want to eat a cookie that has been hanging in the hall all season, but I mind my own business. I can see her point. Who wouldn't have a nibble as they dismantle their tree? The angels in pink dresses blowing trumpets are cheerful, as are those biscuits painted with burning candles amid wreaths of holly, and others decorated with scarlet bells and white bows. The colours are at the poster paint end of the spectrum. The point of each star has a hole for threading your ribbon through. I can barely pull myself away from a row of cookies emblazoned with children in spotted scarves making a snowman. But they have crossed a line, perhaps because of their strong colours and their varnished coating, and seem more decorative than edible. Tempting for their naivety, there is an unsuppressed jollity to them. The rocking horse has a magic all of its own. But I pass on them, knowing I have more subtle and crumbly versions already in my bag. A stall with painted wooden fir trees, a toy hanging from every branch, another of porcelain angels in stiff golden net, bearing harps that wouldn't look amiss in the back of a magazine with the limited edition mugs of the Queen Mum. To make up for this sudden flash of angelic kitsch, there's a green deck stall of Lebkuchen, the ginger and cinnamon spice confectionery that sings so sweetly of Germanic Christmases. Rounds and hearts and houses dripping with icing snow. The Lebkuchen are nothing if not fragrant. I cannot miss the Huselbrot, the sister to our Christmas cake, and with sultanas wedged tightly among dried pears, apricots and prunes, the southern German recipe has something of Italian panforte to it, for which read reassuringly heavy. There is aniseed and cinnamon, honey and cloves, walnuts and sliced almonds, spiked with citrus zest and baked to a texture, somewhere between Christmas cake and stolen, about the size of a house brick, the glistening brack will sit neatly in my suitcase. Never having thought of myself as a cookie-cutter type of guy, I'm nevertheless fascinated by a thousand shining templates hanging from a pinboard. Candy canes and teddy bears, Douglas firs and saws, reindeers and a sleigh. There's a night sky of stars in every size and shape, gingerbread people and churches with steeples. They're meant for bakers, but my father was an engineer, and the quality of them intrigues. The crispness of the image, the curve of the half-moon, the solder of the soldier. I choose a couple of snowflakes and a good star or two. In cookie-cutter land, the points of a star should be sharp like an arrow, not soft and rounded like a ghost with its arms up. The most difficult to access through the throng is that of a second generation of stallholder with the sort of tree baubles to send collectors weak at the knees. I join the scrummage, asserting myself with my elbows like a granny at a jumble, aware that any sudden jolt could send a hand-painted globe crashing to the cobbles, 
I pounce on a pomegranate, its centre glistening like a jewellery box. There are figs too, and wedges of watermelon. I buy pear halves in soft shades of silver and lemon, and some poisonous toadstools displayed in a nest of moss straight from the brother's grim. I'll be lucky to get such fragile treasures home in one piece, but they will be well cushioned with bubble wrap, the modern-day answer to swaddling clothes. What you should not miss is right above your head. Frosted fur cones and feathered birds, snow-sprinkled globes and glittering crusted stars, gaudy en masse, but in isolation, each piece as exquisite as any Fabergé egg. And now a recipe. Orange and poppy seed stolen. It is with some relief as I look down at the untidy bundle that is my homemade Christmas stolen that I remember the cake is meant to resemble the baby Jesus in swaddling clothes. There's nothing like the word swaddling to give an amateur baker a comforting amount of artistic licence. This recipe looks more daunting than it actually is. You basically make a bread dough with a bit of butter and egg in it. Knead it for a while, then leave it alone to do its thing. Later, you knead it with fruit and spice, tuck in the marzipan and let it rest before baking. Despite its length, the recipe really couldn't be simpler. But because of its unavoidable double rising, may I suggest you give yourself plenty of time. This makes one large stolen. That's enough for eight. Butter, 100 grams. Plain flour, 500 grams. Fresh yeast, 40 grams or seven dried. Warm milk, 225 milliliters. Sugar, 30 grams. Salt, half a teaspoon, an egg. For the filling, golden sultanas, 125 grams. Candied citrus peel, 125 grams. A medium-sized orange. Rum or brandy, four tablespoons. Vanilla extract, a teaspoon. Green cardamoms, eight. Poppy seeds, two teaspoons. Ground cinnamon, half a teaspoon. Flaked almonds, 50 grams. Marzipan, 200 grams. A little beaten egg. And for the glaze, 50 grams of butter and a bit of icing sugar. You will need a large baking sheet lined with baking parchment. Put the sultanas into a mixing bowl. Chop the candied citrus peel into small dice and add to the sultanas. Finally grate the zest from the orange and add to the bowl. Squeeze in the juice of the orange, pour in the rum or brandy and vanilla, then toss together and leave for an hour. Melt the butter in a small pan, then leave to cool down. Put the flour into a large mixing bowl, no need to sieve it. If using fresh yeast, warm the milk to body temperature it should feel comfortable rather than cold or scalding when you insert your finger. Then crumble in the yeast and stir to dissolve. Add the sugar and salt to the flour and mix well. Beat the egg. Stir in the egg and warm milk and butter. If you're using dried yeast, add the yeast straight to the flour, then stir in the other ingredients followed by the warm milk, egg and butter. Mix thoroughly. 
The dough should be soft, shiny and rather sticky. In all honesty, it might be very sticky. Turn out onto a generously floured board and knead for a good eight minutes. As you knead, the dough will become less and less sticky and more like a bread dough, though it will always be heavier because of the butter and egg. When the dough is soft, elastic and no longer sticking to the board, scoop it up and put it in a floured bowl. Set aside, covered with a clean tea towel, somewhere warm and draught-free for a good hour or until it's well risen. It won't be quite twice the size of the original dough, but well on the way. Alternatively, mix and knead using a food mixer fitted with a dough hook until the dough comes cleanly away from the sides of the bowl. Break the cardamom pods open and remove their seeds. Crush the seeds to a coarse powder using a pestle and mortar or a spice mill. Then mix in a small bowl with poppy seeds, cinnamon and almonds. Dust the work surface with flour and tip your risen dough onto it. Knead the spice and seed mixture and the soaked fruits, leaving behind most of the liquid into the dough. Roll into a long loaf about 22 centimetres by 16 and flatten it slightly. Roll the marzipan into a cylinder nearly the length of the dough, then place it in the centre. Brush the edges with a little beaten egg and press together. Turn the dough over and place it onto a lined baking sheet, cover with a towel and return it to a warm place to prove for a further hour and a half. Heat the oven to 180 degrees centigrade, gas mark 4. Place the loaf in the hot oven and bake for about 35 to 40 minutes until pale gold. Melt the butter for the glaze and brush over the loaf. Cool on a wire rack, then dust with icing sugar. I think you can be quite generous here. To keep. When the loaf is thoroughly cool, wrap loosely in waxed paper or cling film and keep in a biscuit tin. Ring the changes with chopped apricots, dried cranberries or chopped and stoned prunes. You can freeze a baked stolen quite successfully. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles Notes, Stories and 100 Essential Recipes for Midwinter is available now in hardback, audio and ebook, and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again in our next chapter as we delve further into the season and I share some more recipes and wintered stories.